where we continue in our Daniel series tonight. And it would be great if you could pick up a Bible and turn to Daniel 5 for yourself. Uh, Chris and Sophie Riley are going to come and read it to us. Uh, if you're looking to use one of the Pew Bibles, that's page 889. I'll hand over to you guys. Thank you so much for reading. King Belteshazzar gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles and drank wine with them. While Belshazzar was drinking his wine, he gave orders to bring all the gold and silver goblets that Nebuchadnezzar, his father, had taken from the temple in Jerusalem, so that the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, might drink from them. So they brought in the gold goblets that had been taken from the temple of God in Jerusalem, and the king and his nobles, his wives and his concubines, drank from them. As they drank the wine, they praised the gods of gold and silver, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone. Suddenly, the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall near the lampstand in the royal palace. The king watched the hand as it wrote. His face turned pale, and he was so frightened that his knees knocked together and his legs gave way. The king called out for the enchanters, astrologers, and diviners to be brought and said to these wise men of Babylon, whoever reads this writing and tells me what it means will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around his neck. He will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then all the king's wise men came in, but they could not read the writing or tell, what the, king had, tell the king what it meant. So King Belshazzar became even more terrified and his face grew more pale. His nobles were baffled. The queen, hearing the voices of the king and his nobles, came into the banquet hall. O oh, king, live forever, she said. Don't be alarmed, don't look so pale. There is a man in your kingdom who has the spirit of the holy gods in him. In the time of your father, he was found to have insight and intelligence and wisdom like that of the gods. King Nebuchadnezzar, your father, your father the king, I say, appointed him chief of the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners. This man, Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar, was found to have a keen mind and knowledge and understanding, and also the ability to interpret dreams, explain riddles, and solve difficult problems. Call for Daniel, and he will tell you what the writing means. So Daniel was brought before the king, and the king said to him, Are you Daniel, one of the exiles my father the king brought from Judah? I have heard that the spirit of the gods is in you, and that you have insight, intelligence, and outstanding wisdom. The wise men and enchanters were brought before me to read this writing and tell me what it means. But they could not explain it. Now I have heard that you are able to give interpretations and to solve difficult problems. If you can read this writing and tell me what it means, you will be clothed in purple and have a gold chain placed around your neck. You will be made the third highest ruler in the kingdom. Then Daniel answered the king, You may keep your gifts for yourself and give your rewards to someone else. Nevertheless, I will read the writing for the king and tell him what it means. O king, the Most High God gave your father, Nebuchadnezzar, sovereignty and greatness and glory and splendor. Because of the high position he gave him, all the peoples and nations and men of every language dreaded and feared him. Those the king wanted to put to death he put to death, and those he wanted to spare, he spared. Those he wanted to promote, he promoted. 
and those he wanted to humble, he humbled. But when his heart became arrogant and hardened with pride, he was deposed from his royal throne and stripped of his glory. He was driven away from people and given the mind of an animal. He lived with the wild donkeys and ate grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until he acknowledged that the Most High God is sovereign over the kingdoms of men and sets over them anyone he wishes. But you, his son, O Belshazzar, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Instead, you have set yourself up against the Lord of heaven. You had the goblets from his temple brought to you, and you and your nobles, your wives, and your concubines drank wine from them. You praised the gods of silver and gold, of bronze, iron, wood, and stone, which cannot see or hear or understand. But you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life and all your ways. Therefore, he sent the hand that wrote the inscription. This is the inscription that was written. Mene, mene, tekel, parsin. This is what the words mean. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed on the scales and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and Persians. Then at Belshazzar's command, Daniel was clothed in purple. A gold chain was placed around his neck and he was proclaimed the third highest ruler in the kingdom. That very night, Belshazzar, king of the Babylonians, was slain, and Darius the Mede took over the kingdom at the age of 62. Thank you. Thanks. Many of you will know that we used to have a garage out there, out the side of the, the church building. And when we were in our old offices, uh, a year and a half or so ago, I left the office one Thursday evening. I was trying to get home pretty sharp because uh, I was eager, first of all, to see my wife and my children. Uh, but also, I was keen to get home because Catherine, my wife, was running a Christianity Explored course for some of the, the women in our community. And uh, so I, I was very, very keen to get back quickly. But as I came around this back corner here, and round this corner, just at the bottom of the lane here, I, I, I saw and parked right across the front of our garage was a car. A Vauxhall Meriva, of all things. And never have I before prayed for a traffic warden uh, to come along, but lo and behold, further down the end of the lane, a man in this bright, gleaming yellow jacket. I was like, it's either an angel or it's a traffic warden. I was glad it was a traffic warden and I, 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 I beckoned him forward. He looked nervous at that. I think generally they do. And I said, someone has parked across this garage here. Please, could you help me? Now, by his response, you would have thought that I had just asked him if he could save the world. He said to me, well, well yes. 
yes, I could help you. That is my job. I don't think he's ever been asked that question ever before. Can you help me? And he said, but yes, yes, but I, but I need to follow procedure. I said, that's okay. I don't want you to do anything. But he says, I have to wait five minutes. Then I issue a ticket. Then I put a sticker on the back window that reads authorized for removal. And then I call in the truck and I said, yeah, beauty. <laughs> oh, and I waited for that truck. I imagined that big truck arriving, hoisting this Vauxhall onto its back and the owner arriving just as the truck was driving away. That was, that was my dream. Now the man did come back, but before the truck came. Is this your car? I asked him, trying to be Christian about it. Ignoring me completely, he walked up, looked at the windscreen, looked at me, looked at the windscreen, looked at me and said, has he given me a ticket? And I just thought of all the questions to ask. Yes, and it's authorized for removal as well, hence the sticker. I said to him, I said, you've parked across this garage. I've been waiting here for 40 minutes. I was supposed to be having dinner with my family 20 minutes ago. Now, at this point, you know what I'm waiting for. As I explained to him the fact that it's got a sign that says, garage in constant use, do not park. What am I waiting for? Because he's blocked me in illegally. I've just informed him that my family are missing me. I was this close to telling him, my wife's got a Christianity Explored course. But I don't think he would have really understood that. What does he do? He ignores me. He gets in, into his car. He's just so miffed that he's got a ticket. And he's worried about getting it towed. He just gets in the car and drives off. He didn't even wave. I thought in Britain, you had to wave. He didn't even nod. He just drove off. Doesn't he know that he wronged me? Well, this man acted, I believe, like we often act in relation to God. We, in living our lives in this world, have in effect acted illegally. That is, we've broken his laws. We've incurred a penalty that deserved to be not towed away, but we have sinned against it. Well, I suppose you can call it towing away if you want. We have sinned against him. But we act as if he doesn't exist. We defy him by ignoring him and refuse to apologize him. But unlike the guy who drove away, we will not get away. Because the Bible says that our God is a God of justice. Now, most people in our city care about justice. They care about justice in lots of different ways, from a global scale, about atrocities that happen in the Central Afri African Republic and, and things. People care about those things. They don't like to see uh, the slave trade, for example, uh, human trafficking for prostitution, all those things. People hate that kind of injustice. But when we, as Christians, explain to people that actually God is as much against them for their defiance of him as he is against those who traffic people or children. Well, people balk at that. They don't, at that point, they tend not to really like the idea of a God who judges. They have no regard for God or his laws and they say with defiance, 
it's not the kind of God I want to believe in. But what does Daniel 5 have to say to us? Daniel 5 says to us that actually, until we acknowledge that we are in a sense weight and found wanting, until we recognize truly that we are those who have not humbled ourselves and have set ourselves up against God in defiance of him, not even a wave, not even a nod, then he will seek us out and he will judge us. So what do we have to learn from this passage concerning Belshazzar? Of course, Belshazzar, just to give you a catch-up, is, well, he's effectively the third king after Nebuchadnezzar. Daniel's not really part of the cabinet anymore. We see that a little bit later on in the service when the queen, or queen mother, if you like, invites Daniel in. But here's what I think we're going to see. I think Belshazzar provides for us this proud man who, who is a picture of our human defiance. And what we're going to see in here is that we believe in a God who is trustworthy, even in the face of that kind of defiance, God who judges us. So let's look at verses 1 to 16, first of all. And what we see in Belshazzar is this picture of defiance. Now, God wants us to see what our human, our human defiance for what it is. That is, people see themselves often as untouchable. And Belshazzar is an example of this. Verse 1, we read about Belshazzar's banquet. The king gave a great banquet for a thousand of his nobles. Now, History tells us that while this party was in full flow, the Medo-Persian king was outside the city. That only 10 days or so before this party, the, the Medo-Persian army had trounced Belshazzar's army only 50 miles away, and now they're laying siege to Babylon. Now that makes this, the timing of this party absolutely bizarre. Tell me, Think about it yourself. If your house was about to be ransacked by an enemy, would you throw a party or would you put up a fight? Or would you at least try to run away? Well, not Belshazzar. So why throw a party when in effect an enemy is crouching at his door? Well, it's simple. Belshazzar thinks he's entirely secure here. And there are a couple of things, well, three things really, that stoked his confidence and stoked his view that he was some untouchable king in the first instance i mean babylon let's face it it was a fortress it was a picture of architectural genius it was one of the first cities i think that was ever built with like a double wall system with a gap in between the first wall being so wide on top that you could do a three-point turn with a four-horse carriage on top of it it was massive it was massive so he was confident in that respect. Also, Babylon was a storehouse. There was lots of food in it, and the river Euphrates ran all the way through it, so they weren't going to go hungry, they weren't going to go thirsty. There was no problem. But the third thing, Belshazzar, well, he was just proud. He was just defiant in the face of his enemy. It's plain to see even in verse 2. His wives and concubines were at his party. That tells us they're trying to create this scene of sensuality and pleasure. Death is effectively crouching at his door, and he's having an orgy. And then he was defiant in the face of the one true living God. That's what's really behind him bringing in these silver goblets and gold goblets that once belonged to the temple in Jerusalem. That tells us that he is both creating a scene of mockery of Israel's God and also a scene of so-called 
worship, trying to stir up these false gods that they bowed down and worship. Maybe then they will act on his behalf. So he has these vessels, one set apart for the worship of God, the living God, being used to worship man-made statues. I think in here we have the epitome of the rich man in Luke 12, 19, who said to himself, after building his barns, bigger barns, bigger barns still, he said to himself, so you have plenty of good things laid up for many years. Take life easy, eat, drink, be merry. He's just a picture of defiance. It's not so different for the people in our city. Actually, an enemy, the greatest of enemy, that is death, crouches at everyone's door. There are reminders of this all around us, whether it's the hearse driving slowly up the street, or whether it's the notice in the paper, or the flowers on the mantelpiece that fade, death looms, yet people try and defy it in true Belshazzar style. People sleep around, immerse themselves in sensuality and pleasure. They defy the one true living God and suppressing the plain truth that creation, conscience, and Christ have made known to them. And they take, if you like, these vessels that God created for his own glory, their bodies, and use them for worship of their man-made idols of money, sex, power, whatever else. Well, like Belshazzar, they need someone or something to help them see the foolishness of their petty defiance. And this is often the way that God works, to rock a person's worldview, to change the very view that they have on the whole world around them and just transform it. And this is what we see. People see their worldview rocked. As the party goers are enjoying themselves, verse 5 says, Suddenly the fingers of a human hand appeared and wrote on the plaster of the wall. You see what's happening here? God is gate crashing the party, essentially. Can you imagine that? Can you imagine God showing up in the middle of some party of sensual revelry that you are holding? Imagine what it would be like if God turned up in one of the strip clubs up on Lothian Road and started writing some stuff on the wall. How do you think people would feel? How would you feel about that? When I was a teenager, uh, me and my mates used to love it when someone had what was called a free house. Not a pub, but a home where the parents had gone away for a day or so. Somebody's parents would go away for the day, a flock of teenage kids would sweep in. It was really stupid. Uh, to actually be the person who invited all these teenagers into your house. But for some reason, it kind of got you kudos. It's the weird world of teenagers in West Lothian. Anyway, <laughs> I remember one time at my house where my parents were out, must have been about 13 or 14, um, my house just got trashed with all these people coming round, all these young folks. People were helping themselves to my dad's drinks cabinet. Others were using mum's coffee table as a flat surface to roll joints. Uh, a, a coffee table, it must say, I must say they were already cracked. Um, others were using bedrooms for things I don't want to mention. And the front bedroom was essentially being used as a launch pad for rockets, screamers, and other explosives. It was uh, close to Guy Fawkes night, but that's no excuse. What do you think might be the worst nightmare for a kid with a free house? Well, there I was just chatting with some friends upstairs, only to hear, what on earth? It's going on here. And I thought, oh no, it's the police. And then I realized it was something worse. It was my mum. 
Now, what happened to me? How did I respond in that situation? Well, I think the same way that Belshazzar responded in that situation. My face turned pale. My knees started to knock. Why? When the one with authority turns up, the one with real authority turns up, you're, you start, you're affected by it, even emotionally. You're not only guilty for going against that person's wishes. You're not only embarrassed at being caught in the act. You're afraid because you know deep down that what you've done is wrong and you know it will be punished. Now, if that's how we feel when we get caught in the act by another human being, how do you think we would feel when confronted by God himself? I'll tell you how you feel. In the holiness of his presence and in the recognition of his authority to judge, we'll feel so afraid that our knees will knock and our face would turn deathly pale. Even when you think about some of the great heroes of faith in the past, like Isaiah, one of God's faithful servants, when he was confronted with the very presence of God, he was like, whoa, I'm falling apart. I'm coming undone. And if that's how one of God's, in our view, greatest servants feels, how would we feel? In what way should we respond well, don't make the mistake that Belshazzar makes. It's typical. People look for answers in all of the wrong places. Verse 7 tells us that he calls in these enchanters, the astrologers, all these other people, and so on. And I don't know if you've noticed this already in Daniel, but as soon as there's a, a point of controversy, if there's something going on, when some puzzling happens, they wheel in the world's experts. It's just like the BBC. You know, there's breaking news, and then in come the sociologists, the scientists, economists. Oh, really, can they read the writing in this world? I'm not sure. You know, people in our city would actually balk at what I've just said. But you can't take, you know, scientists, economists, and sociologists and compare them with astrologers and enchanters. You know, that was superstition. We're talking about science here. But listen, when it comes to figuring out what life is all about, modern worldly wisdom is no different from ancient worldly wisdom in terms of its helpfulness. We have to understand, of course, that there's almost too much, well, there is too much dependence on science for explanation of things. Well, science can certainly describe things, but it can't explain. Science can tell you what happens, but it can't tell you why something happens. And maybe you're here today and you're not a Christian. Where do you look to find meaning and wisdom in life Especially on those occasions in life that just rock you and hit you and shake your whole worldview and make you think, well, what is it all about? Those deeper, more significant questions, if you like. If you want to get to the bottom of things, worldly wisdom can't help you. Stephen Hawking can't help you any more than Mystic Meg can help you. You need to go to the word of the prophets, to go to the Bible. Now, to, to that, even some will say, well, the Bible, that's just legend or it's fiction or... Some might even say, oh, you know, when I was younger, I heard that Belshazzar himself is the example of the Bible's inaccuracies. That's why I don't trust the Bible. Now, they say that because we know that after Nebuchadnezzar, there were three other kings. And the last king of Babylon before Cyrus came was a man named Nabonidus. So he was the third and last king in the Babylonian line. So there was no mention of, Babel, of Belshazzar in history. There was no such person. So they would say, oh, none of this could have happened. So it's legend, don't trust it. 
I wonder how many people have been duped by arguments like that. Because here's the thing, not too long ago, they dug up an inscription on a tablet and here's what they found. Actually, you can go and see it in the museum in London, National Museum. Nabonidus tried to exalt some kind of moon god above the preferred god in Babylon and therefore the priests there were not that happy about it. So they exiled him. He had to go away 500 miles and live in a desert with a bunch of his mates. But in the meantime, his own son, Belshazzar, was appointed as a co-regent in Babylon. Because he quite liked Marduk, the main god that they all liked to worship. And that's why, so you've basically got Nabonidus, who's effectively still the king but in exile. You've got Belshazzar, who's the co-regent. He is the king in Babylon. That's why when you see a little bit later on, when he's going to offer a reward for anyone can read and interpret this writing for me. I'll make him the third highest ruler. That's as far as he could put him. Nabonidus, Belshazzar, whoever could interpret. That means that the biblical account offers a whole lot more about the history of ancient Babylon than even the peppered picture of modern historians. What are you going to bank your life on? What are you going to trust? the word of the living and true God or an incomplete history it's dangerous people say you can't trust the Bible therefore I'm going to build my life on something else and whoops someone on earth an inscription on an ancient tablet and that says oh yeah that bit's actually right it's dangerous all that to say don't look for answers in the wrong places look to the true word of God and do it with confidence and heed the warning, heed the warning even of this passage, that human defiance will be shown up for what it is, particularly in the presence of God. Belshazzar's mum gets it. Actually, it's the queen mother. It's not Belshazzar's wife. The, the wives and concubines were all at the party. You don't invite your mum to a party, okay? Queen mother comes in. She says, get Daniel. He'll tell you what it means, okay? And this is where we see the second thing tonight. In verses 17 to 30, this picture of human defiance and this warning of divine judgment. In verses 17 to 23, you have the charges against us laid out. And I love this. The king had promised a great reward to the one who can read the writing on the wall. But Daniel turns up and says, keep your gifts. Don't want them. But I'll tell you what the writing says. And it's the same for us. When we share the gospel, we're not doing it for some personal gain. We do it for God's glory and for the sake of the lost soul that is before us. It's always our motivation. But look at what Daniel does. He doesn't look to the writing on the wall straight away. He looks Belshazzar in the eye and effectively gives him some history lesson. Effectively saying to him, you have failed to learn the lessons of your fathers and you, proud king, have not humbled yourself. In verses 18 to 21, he says, let me tell you about a man called Nebuchadnezzar. You know all about him. God gave Nebuchadnezzar dominion and power over everything, he says, but he was arrogant and proud. He walked around saying everything was by me and for me in this Babylon and this empire. But that's God's tagline. So God humbled him. So God made it so that the king, Nebuchadnezzar, became a cow until he acknowledged, verse 21, that the most high God is sovereign over kingdoms on earth and sets over them anyone he wishes. Verse 22, but you, Belshazzar, his son, here's the indictment, have not humbled yourself, though you knew all this. Though you 
knew all this. Ah, you see, his problem is not ignorance. It's insolence. He's not saying, oh, I had no idea that there was a God in heaven who might cut me down because I'm proud. He knows what God is like because of the humbling of Nebuchadnezzar was a famous story made famous because Nebuchadnezzar ruled the whole world at that time. And Nebuchadnezzar then, after his whole experience of his humbling and his being restored and blessed, wrote to the whole world. We saw that last week. But Belshazzar knows it, and yet he ignores it in his wickedness, if you like. He has suppressed what he knows to be true about God and defies him. You're here tonight and you're not a Christian. Maybe that's what you do. Maybe that's what you are doing now. Maybe you don't follow Jesus yet, but you've heard a lot about him and you've heard a lot about all the the warnings of the, the judgment to come. I mean, how many times in the week, the past week, have you suppressed that knowledge, squeezed it away into some of the recesses of your minds in order to almost justify to yourself the reason for doing the thing that you really want to do because you're serving yourself as an idol? Well, God will hold you to account and show your actions for what they are, just as he did with Belshazzar. Because by refusing to humble yourself before God, we must realize this. You are guilty of setting yourself up, as verse 23 says, against the God of heaven. In other words, you're guilty of getting into the ring with God and squaring up. And that's crazy. It's just crazy. When I was growing up, I used to love fighting with my big brothers. But they were six and eight years older than me and therefore bigger and stronger than me. And no matter how hard I tried, no matter how much energy I exerted, no matter how quick I tried to be with them, I would never win. I was no match for their might. And it's the same when humanity goes toe-to-toe in defiance with God. Psalm 2 says that when this happens, the one enthroned in heaven laughs he <laughs> just laughs and it's the same it's such a ridiculous thing for puny humanity to pull on the gloves and get in the ring with God yet that's what Belshazzar has done and that's what we do when we take what God has given us it's referred to by Daniel in here as all of our life and all of our ways it's all a gift from God right when we take all of that and say all this is by me and all this is for me pride what will be the end result is the next question that we ask well verses 24 to 25 tell us the judgment of God is carried out a day will come when we will all appear before the judgment seat of Christ and the books will be opened we'll have to give an account of our lives if that happens tomorrow there are 430,000 people in our city that will hear the same words of judgment that Belshazzar heard. You have been weighed and found wanting. Does that concern you? It's effectively what the writing means. Many, God has numbered the days of your reign and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have 
been weighed on the scales and found wanting, parson, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. For Belshazzar, that was an utterly devastating message. The judge's verdict, written by the finger of God himself. And that very night, the thing that God said would happen, happened. So verses 30 and 31 tell us. But what was true for Belshazzar is true for every single one of us. From Acts 17, the passage I read at the beginning of our service, we read that the com- God commands all people everywhere to do what? Repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed, Jesus Christ. And how do we know that he's going to do that? Well, he gave us proof to this to all men by raising him from the dead. So the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is not only something that fills us with great joy at the prospect of us, of that being the first fruits of our own resurrection, but fundamentally it is proof positive that there is a coming day when God will judge the world. Our family members, our friends, the people we work beside in our city, the people who live two or three doors up for you, the person who shares your house or your flat, Does that concern you? It should concern us greatly. God's verdict is written on the walls of hearts everywhere. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And the prospect of his just judgment and sentencing should cause everyone in our city. Should cause every face to turn pale. And every pair of knees to knock. 2 Thessalonians 1, 8 and 9 says, He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. That's hell. Where people receive in death what they choose in life. A godless existence. Our God is a God of justice and righteousness and holiness. God cannot allow sin to go unpunished. So is there any hope for the people in our city? Is there any hope for you here tonight in this room if you're not a Christian? Is there any way for God to pardon us so that we don't have to bear the wrath, the justice and the vengeance that we actually rightly deserve for our defiance of God oh yes there is Uh, Rico Tice in Christianity Explored course would tell us that we could look to the London skyline for some for a clue he says at the heart of London is the Old Bailey it's the home of British justice at top is Lady Justice in gold she holds scales in the one hand and a sword on the other and the symbolism is clear if you are weighed and found wanting then the sword of judgment must fall but he says just across the skyline on top of St. Paul's is a cross a powerful reminder that although the sword of God's judgment must fall it fell on Jesus Christ Jesus Christ the perfect son of God who stepped into the dock if you like on our behalf and received our sentence, and I, my sentence, and I hope your sentence tonight, death 
judgment and wrath. He secured for us a righteous verdict from God the judge rather than a guilty one by bearing the very wrath of God that we deserved in his own body on that very tree, on that very cross. Do you understand that? Though our sin deserves judgment and wrath, God's justice is satisfied when on the cross, Jesus died as our substitute. Understand how important that is. This, that makes pardon possible for anyone who would repent of their sins put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and to know it for ourselves we must confess our sins to say sorry for our sins to thank God for sending his son into the world and profess that you believe in him with all your heart and that you are trusting in him for your salvation I'm pleased to look around and see so many faces in this place tonight who have done just that who have banked their all on Jesus Christ and who are trusting in him the fact that God will not condemn you or hold you to account because already, he's already spent his justice on his son and for him to spend it on you again would be unjust of God wouldn't it so he can't do that and yet we live in a city where there are hundreds of thousands of people never mind the world of seven billion do not know him and with the sword of judgment lifted high over them as they have been weighed and found wanting we must tell them we must tell them but if you're here tonight and you're not a Christian please don't leave without thinking through this seriously or I pray even putting your faith and trust in him for yourself C.S. Lewis says there are only two kinds of people in this world those who say to God your will be done or those to whom God says in the end, your will be done. All that receive his judgment, choose it. My prayer is that you would choose rightly tonight and trust in him. God is trustworthy in all respects. We've been learning that through Daniel. In every respect, let us not be foolish in our puny defiance of God, but trust in Jesus our wrath-absorbing, sin-satisfying substitute. Let's bow our heads. Let's pray. Take some time in the quietness to respond, and the band will begin in a minute or so. Why not pray prayers of gratitude to God the judge who judges us rightly.